I invite you to turn with me in your Bibles, if you will, to Acts chapter 13. And uh, it would be a good thing for you at this point as well to take that bulletin. This is not by any means a sacred document. You're free to just tear a strip off of it. And I didn't ask you to do that. And uh, find your way to Matthew chapter 9. Stick your, your little piece of paper in Matthew chapter 9 as a bookmark. And uh, we're going to be looking between Acts chapter 13 and Matthew uh, chapter 9. We've been continuing our way through the book of Acts. And uh, we've come to chapter 13, which is a turning point. It is at this moment in time that God is going to speak to this church in Antioch. And the gospel is now strategically, intentionally going to go out from this church to the ends of the earth. Up until this point in time, all of the interactions between the Jews and the Gentiles It has been relatively incidental. There have been a number of occasions in which the gospel has been uh, proclaimed amongst the Gentiles and and they've been receptive. But it is at this moment in time that the church is going to undertake to send missionaries to the ends of the earth. And this decision was brought about during a worship service in which it says in Acts chapter 13, they were worshiping the Lord and fasting. So we need to take a look at fasting this morning. Before we do, would you please just bow with me in prayer? We need to ask the Lord to uh, illuminate the text before us. Father, we thank you so much for the words that you have given to us. We thank you, Lord, for the example that we have and the instruction that it provides in the first church in the first century. Lord, as we look this morning at this church in Antioch, as we consider these Christians' commitment to worshiping you, and as we look at fasting, Lord, we pray that you would instruct us in terms of how we are to fast and how we ought to include fasting into our worship of you. We pray, Lord, that you would do that by your spirit illuminating the text on the page before us. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. There is an interesting uh, set of letters. It's an interesting piece of fiction that C.S. Lewis wrote. Uh, It's called uh, The Letters to Screwtape. It's a correspondence that takes place between two demons in terms of how they are best to manipulate and control uh, the humans to which they are assigned. One passage in particular has always stood out to me. I'll just share it with you this morning. Uh, He's writing to uh, his nephew, Screwtape, and, and Wormwood says... Humans are amphibians. They are a revolting half spirit and half animal. The enemy's determination to produce such a revolting hybrid was one of the things that determined our father below to withdraw his support from him. Humans, as spirits, belong to the eternal world. But as animals, they inhabit time. This means that while their souls can be directed to an eternal object, their bodies, that is their passions and their imaginations, are in a continuous state of change. For to be in time means change. The nearest approach to constancy, therefore, is undulation. 
the repeated return to a level from which they repeatedly fall back in a series of troughs and peaks. And, and he goes on to discuss this. But one of the things that might stand out to us as we're looking at this particular uh, correspondence is that he rightly identifies humans, that is you and me, people, as being, as he, de- as he describes us, amphibians, that is half spirit or half soul, and then body. And he makes the statement that our souls can be directed towards an eternal object, and then he goes on to speak critically of our bodies. But one of the things we know from Scripture is that we are to worship God in every aspect of our lives. We're to worship him in our soul, in our heart, absolutely, but we're also to worship him with our bodies. So the question is before us today, what can we do, what did the early church do in order to direct their body as well as their soul, not merely to a temporal and changing object, but towards the worship of God? Worship, which is what you and I do, is the obvious answer. They obviously gathered together on Sunday mornings and lifted up their voice. But the less obvious answer is fasting. If you look with me in Acts chapter 13, we see fasting was very much so a part of the church's worship practice. Verse 2, while they were worshiping. So they're together on a Sunday morning. They're worshiping the Lord. They're singing songs. They're doing what you and I have just done while they were worshiping, and then this next little part, while they were worshiping and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. Then, after fasting and praying, they laid their hands on them and sent them off. So they had apparently agreed together as a church congregation that they were going to come on this particular Sunday They were going to worship and they were going to pray, but on this particular Sunday, they had agreed together as a church that they would fast. Now, for those of you who might be relatively new to the Christian faith, you might, or for those of you who are Baptist and you've never done this before in your life, you might be asking the question, what is fasting? Simply put, fasting is when we don't eat food. And again, the Baptists in the room are probably asking, When do we not eat food, Pastor Joshua? (laughs) Well, we always eat food around here. But the early church clearly practiced fasting. There was a time, and it may be very unbaptistic of them, but there was a time in which there was a halt called to the potlucks and the church fellowships and the dinners, and instead they gathered together, but they did so abstaining from food. Fasting is when we don't eat food. And for those of you who've ever tried it, perhaps you've had to fast for a period of time in preparation of surgery or some other kind of procedure. Fasting is when you go without food and it makes your stomach churn from a feeling of emptiness and hunger. But I wonder if you've ever noticed other times in your life in which you fasted, perhaps without thinking about it. Have you ever noticed that when you are deeply grieved or upset about something, you don't want to eat. You just don't think about it. And you're sick to your stomach. Well, that is a form of fasting that is brought about by an emotional or a spiritual state. When we look at fasting in the scriptures, one of the things that we discover is that it is a practice that is, in fact, prescribed by God. And it is possible, very likely, in fact, that fasting is a means whereby we bring our physical 
an emotional state into conformity with our spiritual state. If we are grieved emotionally, or if we are lamenting, if we are expressing sorrow over something, fasting brings our physical state into alignment with our spiritual state. It is, in fact, described as an act of mourning, an act of grieving. Don't flip there, just listen. In Psalm 35, verse 13, David writes, when I went, he, he talks about how his enemies are against him, they're attacking him, and then he goes on to contrast his attitude with that of his enemies. He says, but I, when they were sick, referring to his enemies, when they were sick, I wore sackcloth and I afflicted myself with fasting. I prayed with head bowed on my chest. He talks about the fact that he fasted, and he he describes it as a self-affliction, that he is doing this to himself. And you'll notice in this text, when he says self-affliction, it is a means presented to us there by David in the Psalms, whereby through self-affliction, he's bringing his body into a physical alignment with his heart. He is grieving for his enemies as they are ill, and he is fasting because they are ill, bringing his body into alignment with his heart. As we look through the Old Testament, there is a number of places where the scriptures talk about fasting, quite a number, in fact. I don't have time today to discuss every single instance of it with you, but I will mention a couple. The first is this. God commands in the festival calendar of Israel one fast to be held publicly, This fast was to be held on Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement. In Leviticus 23, God speaking to the nation of Israel says, On the tenth day of the seventh month, this is the Day of Atonement, Yom Kippur. It shall be for you a time of holy convocation, and you shall afflict yourselves and present a food offering to the Lord. It was public. They all knew that this is what they were going to be doing on this particular day of the year. And it was a very sacred and very special day. It would not be entirely altogether different from us gathering together on Easter, but rather than having the Sunday brunch following Easter morning worship services, we all decided we just weren't going to eat that day. That's similar to what they're doing here. God commands the fast to be held publicly. So it was public, and it was every year, so it was regularly observed. And of course, this isn't the only fast that is mentioned. Other fasts are mentioned as well. For example, Jeremiah 36, the prophet Jeremiah called Baruch the son of Neriah, and Baruch went and wrote on a scroll at the dictation of Jeremiah all the words of the Lord that he had spoken to him. And Jeremiah ordered Baruch, saying, I am banned from going into the house of the Lord, so you are to go. And I want you to go, notice this, on a day of fasting. In the hearing of all the people in the Lord's house, you shall read the words of the scroll, all that I have written, all that you have written at my dictation. Another instance, of course, is recorded for us in Joel chapter 2. Yet even now, declares the Lord, return to me with all your heart and with fasting and weeping and with mourning and rend your hearts before me and not merely your garments. He goes on and he says, consecrate a fast, call a solemn assembly. 
we gather from all these different passages in the Old Testament that fasting absolutely is a time in which we are mourning, we are grieving, we are setting aside food in order to demonstrate to God that we belong to him, that we are dependent upon him. You can also conclude from all of these different passages in the Old Testament that fasting is an act of humility. So I ask you this morning, have you, have you ever fasted? I just, that is just perfect punctuation mark to my question, but not by intention. I don't know what's going on here. I have fasted. I'm going to just share with you uh, from my journal entry uh, from 2014. I, I recorded over, I, it was a seven-day fast. I recorded over the series of seven days kind of my experiences, and I'm just going to share this with you briefly. If you've never fasted, this is one man's suffering through fasting. Day one, I was able to go about my day in pretty normal fashion. A couple of times, I momentarily forgot that I was fasting and started to shove a chip into my mouth. Just walking by, and there's a bag of chips on the counter, kitchen counter there, and you just, without even thinking, go for it. How unsettling to think that I might go about the day unconsciously consuming food that is left out in my sight. Isn't eating a conscious choice Was cramming food in my mouth whenever possible a habit that I had spent all my life cultivating? It reminded me of the verse from Matthew 4 where Satan tempts Jesus during the wilderness wanderings. And Jesus responded to Satan by quoting scripture, Man does not live on bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. Day two. I awoke this morning refreshed, even excited, like I had a new toy to play with, like it was Christmas morning or something. I found confidence brewing in the knowledge that I could actually live without constantly eating. To my surprise, I was still able to ride my bike today, though, of course, I went at a slower pace. I found that I had a subtle headache much of the day. My stomach roared with gurgling sounds, and my tongue felt funny. Day three. I arose this morning unassisted and feeling somewhat decent. Throughout the day, my headache, my hunger, and my tongue got worse and worse. Eventually, though, there was a mild sense of euphoria and a profound stillness. I seemed to have stumbled upon some sort of a rhythm to the fast. Tonight, the pain and the boredom subsided. My thoughts were sharp and clear, and I felt very mellow. Prayer was easy and undistracted. I could never describe it, but I felt as though God was somehow closer to me, though I'm not sure why, and I have no definite theological justification for thinking this to really be true. It just feels that way, that God is closer to me. Day four. I was dizzy whenever I stood up today. I have lost five pounds. I tried not to care, but I still did. I began thinking about how I used food. I eat because I think I have to in order to avoid passing out or being irritable with everyone. The truth is, I often eat for pleasure, and just because food was there, I expected to consume it. I used food to escape, to reward myself, to fill in the empty spaces in my life, to relieve myself of boredom. Eating for life-giving sustenance wasn't a thought that is in my head when I eat, but it is now. Day five. Today, Pastor Ryan, I knew Pastor Ryan six years ago in 2014. Is he here this morning? Downstairs. Downstairs. You be sure to share this with him. 
Today, Pastor Ryan asked me to help him move the bouncy castles. At that time, our church had these giant inflatable bouncy castles that kids could jump on. We don't have those any longer, but we did then. They weigh about 350 pounds each. We needed to inflate them in order to clean them, and I found I simply didn't have the strength to move them. Pastor Ryan kept looking at me with what I assumed was annoyance or irritation (laughs) because I was definitely not doing much of the work or lifting, but I was making a lot of grunting sounds. As he continued to look at me with irritation, I confessed to him that I was having difficulty because I was fasting. He laughed at me. (laughs) He laughed at me and said, yeah, right, good excuse. I insisted that I really was fasting and that I was on the fifth day of my fast, to which he replied, quoting Shakespeare, Methinks the lady doth protest too much. (laughs) He wasn't merely quoting Shakespeare, he was really calling me a girl. I warned him that one day I would preach on fasting and that I would use his ridicule as an illustration in that particular sermon. He replied to me that he didn't think I would preach on fasting for at least another decade and that by the time it happened, I would have forgotten. (laughs) Promise yourself, Josh, that you will keep your word and read this journal entry the next time you preach on fasting. I have done my duty. Day six, no food today. Tomorrow I end my fast. I feel very small, very weak, and very humble. Humble. That's the word. I am humbled. My prayers took on a much stronger plea. I find that I am an emotional wreck. Every little thing sets me off in irritation, anger, or self-pity. When I have a moment to think about my conduct towards others today, I am ashamed. It seems I need food to keep my emotions, my mind, even my soul in proper balance. I realize that my ability to behave as I want to behave is dependent upon God's providing me with food. I am again painfully reminded of that verse from Matthew chapter 4. I reach for food so naturally and easily without even thinking about it. Now that I don't have food, I can barely control my attitude towards others, towards family, even towards myself. And yes, I am extremely physically weak. Although I don't notice it, it must be similar when I don't eat the food of God's word. I must be deceived into thinking that my spirit is healthy when really it is flying out of control without the scriptures. If I need food in order to maintain balance, how much more so do I need God's word? If you could see my actual journal entries by day six, my hand, I have fairly neat penmanship. By day six, my handwriting is all over the place. And the last word in my journal entry from day six is Selah, which is from the Psalms. I don't know why I would put that here. Like, I I don't ever sign my journal entries with Selah. I don't know what that is. So clearly, I'm not thinking straight. We do need food. But Jesus teaches us in his confrontation with Satan in Matthew chapter 4, man doesn't live on bread alone, but on every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. Of course, the clearest teaching we have on fasting comes from Jesus himself, As one who fasted for 40 days, he has an insider's perspective. I want you to flip with me to Matthew chapter 9. I want you to look specifically at verses 14 to 16. 
Flip over there, Matthew chapter 9. This is a, a question that comes from the disciples of John the Baptist. It says in verse 14, the disciples of John, referencing John the Baptist, the disciples of John the Baptist came to him saying, why do we and the Pharisees fast, but your disciples do not fast? Okay, so they noticed something. They noticed that the Pharisees all fast, and of course we had Jesus' his opinion on this, his teaching on this. They're obviously fasting to be seen. He had taught previously in Matthew chapter 6, when you fast, don't do it in order to be seen, but you know, do it in secret, anoint your head, you know, Practice proper hygiene so that people don't know you're fasting. And he makes a comment when the Pharisees fast, they do it to be seen. And he says, surely I tell you, they've already received their reward. So now here's something interesting. John the Baptist's disciples come and they seem to notice that they fast. And they're noticing that the Pharisees fast. But they're noticing that the disciples, the apostles of Christ, do not fast. Now, we understand that fasting is to be a private thing based on what Jesus has taught in Matthew chapter 6. Everybody is called to engage in it, but it's not to be a public show. However, there's no way to read these various passages from the Old Testament, the New Testament, and even Acts chapter 13 when it says the church in Antioch was fasting without coming to the conclusion that although Christians are called to fast individually and privately, there are still seasons in the Christian life when we do it together as a body, where it is understood, it is public. There's no way that John the Baptist's disciples could have noticed that Jesus' disciples were not fasting unless these various groups, though they would have practiced it individually, must also have practiced it together corporately. Hey, we all fast, and the Pharisees all fast, but we don't ever noticing your guys fasting as they're asking Jesus. And Jesus responds to them, can the wedding guests mourn as long as the bridegroom is with them? The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them and then they will fast. No one, however, puts a piece of unshrunk cloth on an old garment for the patch tears away from the garment and a worse tear is made. He goes on and he says, likewise, no one puts new wine into old wine skins or else they will burst. Jesus is saying that there's something new about fasting in light of who he is. But before we can understand this, we need to look at all of the different groups that are at play here. First, let's consider the Pharisees. To understand the Pharisees, you need to know where they come from. 200 years before the birth of Christ, there was a tremendous upheaval in the land of Palestine, and there was a, a civil war that was taking place. And it was brought about as a result of foreign influences into the life of Palestine and the interior of Israel. One family in particular, the Seleucids uh, the, from Syria, had gained control over Israel, and they had begun to aggressively introduce Greek culture and Greek thought into Jewish life. Okay? And so there were two sides of this conflict. Obviously, you have the traditionalists and you've got the progressives. And the progressives are saying, hey, Greek culture is great. Let's embrace this. And then the traditionalists are like, whoa, whoa, whoa. We're like 200 years BC. We've just spent the last thousand years going through this brutal cycle of judges and captivities and being dragged off to Babylon, all because we're not faithful to worshiping God. And now you're telling us that we need to be embracing these new cultures and these new customs 
that are Greek, that are coming from polytheistic ideas and, and all of this sort of stuff. It's into this mix that the Pharisees emerge. Of course, they're not known as Pharisees at the time. They're known as Hasidians. The Pharisees emerge, and essentially, they begin advocating for a form of spirituality that demands every ordinary person within Israel live a life of purity on the level that was prescribed in the Mosaic Law for the high priest to observe. Okay? Quoting from Joffrey Bromley and David Barrett's Encyclopedia of Christianity, this is what they say. They took as their standards the traditions and biblical expositions of their leading scribes. They're eschatologically, that is their end times oriented goal, was to make the people of God as, quote, a priestly kingdom and a holy nation. That's, that's referencing Exodus chapter 19. They were going to do that by requiring the nation to adhere to strict conduct in accordance with biblical directions and by applying the laws for the high priest to the everyday life of the ordinary citizen of Israel. So everybody now has to live a life of purity and devotion on par with the high priest. What he's called to do, we all have to do it. And in order to make sure that we are being pure, that all of Israel was being pure, they added a ton of extra rules and regulations to the ones that were there on paper. Such that if you kept all of their additional rules, you could be sure you were keeping all of the biblical rules. It is into this mix that they fast in accordance with Old Testament prescription. But when the Pharisees fast, they are fasting first as an expression of contrition and sorrow over their sin, but secondly, they are fasting as a form of self-righteousness, where they are declaring to God that because of their holiness, God must accept them. Then we have John the Baptist. His guys also fast. John the Baptist is an interesting character because he clearly takes steps, obviously, to distance himself from the Pharisees. And he doesn't want to have anything to do with the temple establishment in Jerusalem. He goes out into the wilderness and he preaches out there by the River Jordan. And so as he's doing this, he's drawing a clear distinction between himself and the religious establishment. That's the priests, that's the Pharisees, that's all of these guys. His disciples, in the same manner, follow him out into the desert, and they typically shunned the religious life of the city, abandoning the trappings of all of the high liturgical practices of the temple as well. Now, why is this? Why do they shun the temple and all of its observances and all that? Well, at the heart of John's ministry was the call for people to repent and to prepare their hearts for the coming of Messiah. John comes in fulfillment of prophecy. Prepare the way of the Lord for salvation comes. Make the low places high and the high places low. Make a, a clear highway, a clear path for the Lord to come to us. This is John's ministry. And he proclaimed a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. Since according to both the Gospels of Matthew and John, John's baptism doesn't actually confer forgiveness, 
His original call for people to be baptized in the wilderness must have been a prophetic call telling them that Messiah was coming. So he wasn't actually forgiving them of their sins, but he was preparing their hearts to receive the one who could. Now, the Pharisees are are fasting as an act of contrition and self-righteousness. The disciples of John are fasting as an act of mourning and waiting. And Jesus says to both groups, you can't take a new patch of cloth and sew it onto an old garment because when you wash it, that new patch is going to shrink and tear. And you can't take new wine and put it into old wineskins because once that wine begins to ferment, it will expand and the old wineskins no longer have the elasticity that they need, so they'll, they'll rupture. And Jesus' point, whichever metaphor you take, whether it's going to be torn or whether it's going to explode, is simply this, that in light of his coming, fasting is different now. Fasting is different. And he says to them, can... Wow, this thing is just really distracting this morning, isn't it? His statement is, can the guests at a wedding mourn or grieve when the bridegroom is with them? No, they can't. His statement is that one day the bridegroom is going to be taken away and then they will mourn, then they will grieve. In other words, then they will fast. Now, why is it that the fasting has changed? The Old Testament form of fasting was done out of an act of mourning and contrition. It was done out of an attempt to signal to God that you were sorry for your sin. But very often, it was actually done as a means to manipulate God into doing your bidding. In Isaiah chapter 58, again, you don't have to flip there, just just listen. In Isaiah chapter 58, God speaks to the nation of Israel and he says, daily these people seek me and delight to know my ways as if they were actually were a nation that did righteousness and did not forsake the judgment of their God. They say, why have we fasted and you see it not? Why have we humbled ourselves and you take no knowledge of it? And he answers, behold, in the day of your fast... You seek your own pleasure, and you oppress all your workers. You fast only to quarrel and to fight and to hit each other with a wicked fist. Fasting like yours this day will not make your voice to be heard on high. Is such the fast that I choose, a day for a person to humble himself, to bow down his head like a reed, and to spread sackcloth and ashes under him? Will you call this a fast and a day acceptable to the Lord when you just go on to oppress? And the passage goes on. And what God is saying there is that fasting just to show yourself to the Lord without being accompanied by repentance by a desire to actually be with the Lord, is no fasting at all. Jesus uses an interesting metaphor. Can the guests at the wedding, the friends of the bridegroom, be sad 
when their friend is getting married. At any wedding, there's joy and there's happiness. And what Jesus is saying is that I am here with my people. We are together. The Messiah has come. He is with the disciples. They are with me. Why would we grieve in this moment? The way that new fasting is new, the way that new covenant fasting is different than old fasting, old covenant fasting, is in that we are not longing for God to come and to do something. We are not longing and aching for something of which we have no understanding or no knowledge. New covenant fasting is different than old covenant fasting in the sense that we have actually tasted the goodness of the Lord. We have seen the bridegroom. We understand his love for his people. We know individually, you and me, one-on-one, that the God of the universe loves us. We've tasted it. We've seen it. And now we long to see more of it. It isn't a cry for God, I don't know how to make things right in the world. I'm clueless about salvation. I don't know how you're going to take this sin away from me. It is a cry now to be with the bridegroom. That's what fasting is. Over the course of my walk with Christ, I have prayed probably hundreds of thousands of prayers. I have prayed myself Thank you, Lord, for forgiving me of my sins. I've prayed on behalf of this church and other churches. God, thank you for giving giving us of our sins. I've prayed that a hundred times, probably thousands of times, maybe hundreds of thousands of times over the course of my life. But I'm here to tell you, none of that is sufficient. I know that Jesus hears me. I know that God hears that prayer. But if I were to stand here today and tell you that that was good enough, I would be lying to you because despite all of that talk, all of that prayer, and knowing he has heard all of that, it still doesn't satisfy my soul because I still want to see Jesus face to face, eyeball to eyeball. He has died for my sins. He has separated me from my penalty, from my punishment. And yes, I've said it to him a thousand, hundred thousand times, thank you. But I'm telling you, and if you have walked with Christ, you know this to be true yourself. While we understand that he hears us in our hearts and in our souls, that's still not good enough. Well, I want to fall down at his feet. I want to wrap my hands around his ankles. And I want to express to him face to face, thank you. I grieve not because I don't understand salvation. I grieve now. I fast now because I understand it so well. And this time of waiting for the bridegroom to come back a second time for the final time is torturous. The focus is not on my sin now. The focus is on my best friend and that he is not here with me. That's the difference between old covenant fasting and new covenant fasting. This church in Antioch, going back to Acts chapter 13, they are worshiping 
the Lord. They are praising him. They are saying, God, you are great. God, you are wonderful. They are extolling his virtues. They are praising his beauty. They are expressing gratitude for the forgiveness which he has freely given to them, yet was so costly to himself. They're praising him for all of that. And it says they're fasting. This is not, oh, I wonder how I'm going to get washed of my sins. I'm confused. No, they understand all of those things. Now the mourning and the grieving that is associated with fasting is transferred over to the idea that they don't see Jesus and they want to see him. They are essentially saying, God, we want you to come. Jesus, come back. We miss you. We wish you were here. We're sick without you. They're signaling that to him. And the response of the Holy Spirit is this. I miss you guys too. Set apart Barnabas and Saul for the work that we have to do. And Jesus, you know he wants to be with us. In Luke, he makes the statement last night, last supper, before he's to be crucified. He says, I tell you the truth, I will not partake of the fruit of the vine again until I drink it anew with you in my Father's kingdom. So Jesus is observing a fast of his own, a partial fast. Maybe it's a full fast, who knows. But he's fasting until he can be with his people. You know he wants to be with us. That's how he tells you he wants to be with us. These guys want to be with him. There is no disagreement in us wanting to be together. But Jesus came in order that salvation would be proclaimed to the nations. You want to come home? I want you to come home. There's work to be done before that day happens. Jesus is saying, I love the world and I want them to hear the gospel. You love me, you want to come home to me, that's great. You go and tell the world about me. Set these two guys apart, send them out. That's what's happening here in Acts chapter 13. Be careful though. Listen. Sharing the gospel, going to the ends of the earth, telling others about Jesus, is not merely a means to an end. We are not merely proclaiming the gospel in order to hasten our Lord's return. We are proclaiming the gospel because our Lord loves them as he loves us. Which means that if we love him, we will also love the things that he loves. And what he is saying to the church in Antioch and what he is saying to you and me today is this. Yes, I want to be with you guys. Yes, I see that fasting. Yes, I long to be together, but I love them and I will not return until they come back. And if we love what he loves, then we also have to love taking the gospel to the ends of the earth. It is a transformation of our heart that is ultimately happening when we fast. Now, Jesus has already taught 
I mean, one of the things he could have said, when, the, when John the Baptist's disciples came in Matthew chapter 9, hey, why don't you guys fast? We fast, they fast, you don't fast. What's going on? He could have said, look, man, I already said, this is chapter 9, I said all the way back in chapter 6, three chapters back, that we do this thing individually and privately, so just step off, all right? He could have said that, but he didn't. And the reason he didn't is because, although we're called to individual private fasting, we're also called to public corporate fasting. I mean, the church at Antioch, if you just look at it, they're fasting together as a church. And the teaching that Jesus responds to them with isn't, no, 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 corporate public fasting isn't, is wrong, it shouldn't happen. His teaching is, no, 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 we've got to change the way we think about fasting altogether. And so by point of application this morning, First Baptist Church, we would do well to fast together on occasion as a church. Do you long to see Christ? I know you do. Does Christ so fill your thoughts that some days you are sick without him? You are missing him and you are sick and you just can't eat food. To which you reply, nope, I'm Baptist. I eat every day, three, four, five, six times a day some days. We are called to fast. Jesus says when you fast, not if you fast. It is something he uses to shape our hearts. But ultimately, we fast not to be seen by each other, not to appear righteous, not to justify ourselves. We fast because we want to signal to our Father in heaven that we understand the gift and we are ready for him to come back. So I invite you to fast with me. At the end of February, we're going to have our annual Great Commission meeting. Most churches have an annual general meeting. It's our conviction here that the business of our church is the business of making Christ known and proclaiming him to the ends of the earth. So our meeting is not a general meeting because there's really one general piece of business we're focused on. It's the Great Commission. So we're going to have our AGCM at the end of February. And I would invite you, as you are able, to fast with me in advance of that meeting at the end of February. I'd like to call you as a church to a three-day fast. I understand some of us in this room have medical conditions and it's not safe and you can't do it and that's okay. But for those of you who are able, and even for those of you who couldn't possibly do a three-day fast, maybe you could do a one-day fast, I invite you to join us as a church fasting before the Lord as we come together seeking to carry his gospel to the ends of the earth. I consider this church here in Acts chapter 13, Antioch, Worshiping and fasting, the Spirit spoke. And having spoken, they obeyed. And the world was forever changed. Let's fast and pray that God would so choose to use us as he did the church at Antioch. Let's pray, church. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you 
for your son. Lord, we have been bought by the precious blood of Christ. And now, Lord, we want a closer walk with you. You're too far away. We know that you're here with us by your spirit. We thank you for that, Lord. And of course, we trust in your sovereign judgment and your wisdom. This is best. We know that. But our hearts still cry out and long for you. Lord, for some of us, we've gotten too comfortable in this life. We've gotten too familiar with the various pleasures and leisurely activities that are available to us in this incredibly wealthy country in which we live. We've become self-satisfied. We reach for food and many other things subconsciously without even thinking about it. Lord, I just pray for our church that we would be reminded everything we have from the clothes on our back, the roof over our head, and especially the food that we take for granted. It all comes from you and it is all given that we might be praising you, worshiping you, longing to see you again. Father, help us to hunger and thirst after your son and only after him. Lord, purge us of worldliness, purge us of self-justification, purge us of self-satisfaction, make us desperate to see Christ again. We pray these things in Jesus' name, amen. If you are here this morning and you have never trusted in Jesus, you've never tasted just exactly how good Jesus is, we invite you at this time to believe in the good news that Jesus Christ died on the cross for you in your place. We invite you to trust in the good news that there is no other way you will ever go to heaven apart from Jesus. The good news that you don't have to look for anyone else everything you could ever possibly hope for and more is found in Christ. Trust in Christ this morning. This goes not only for those of you who may never have trusted in him, but for all of us. Trust in Jesus and desire to walk closer with him.